everyone. It's Dr. G. Welcome to Heal Thyself. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Taking your time out of the day. I really appreciate it. Very, very cool show coming. Really, really good one. Um, the knowledge bomb is going to be surrounding something that I have noticed that folks really have the tendency to do when faced with emotion. And that's the topic of emotional suppression and how it can affect our both our mental mental, emotional, and physical health. So I really want to go into that so we understand not only what emotional suppression does, but strategies that we can use to help us bring that to the surface and open up and have a healthier relationship with emotion. Also, a special guest, Luisa Nicola. She's from Australia, living in New York, and dropping into LA, and it's going to be a really, really great talk. We're going to be going into the topics of brain brain health, brain longevity, what's affecting our brain from being its optimum. I mean, she is all things brain. She's one of the brightest minds out there. So I'm really honored to have her here. So if you care about your brain or really want to optimize your brain, then I want you to tune into that part too. Okay. So without further ado, let's just jump into this knowledge bomb. All right. Emotional suppression. This is it's a regulation strategy, all right? Uh, when some folks are basically faced with stress and they utilize their emotional suppression mechanism to avert themselves from an outlet of releasing the stress. And that's basically what happens. Um, and I know it can resonate with a lot of people because a lot of us utilize emotional suppression. All right. Maybe you saw it in your family, maybe in your parents, maybe your dad was, he never showed emotion and he suppressed it, or maybe you saw it in your mom. But I know this can be a major issue for so many of us, uh, especially for men, but also I've seen it a lot in women too, but really a lot of, and to piggyback off my last show is society really does teach us men to emotionally suppress and not show them. Now, EQ, not IQ, is really the overall way we handle emotions. This is the emotional intelligence. How do we handle our emotions? Are we aware of it? Do we regulate them? And do we express our emotions in a healthy way? This is absolutely something that I know I've struggled with for most of my life. And uh, it's something that I didn't feel comfortable showing emotion uh, until really this year. But it's been very liberating. And this is why I put so much passion behind this, because I know that if you are an emotional suppressor, I want you to learn that there are ways to express emotion in a healthy way and to know that it's safe and also we need to understand that there are some physical side effects to this. So we constantly forget that emotional status plays a major role in our physical health. Where are we emotionally on the spectrum? Are we holding in a lot of crap? That's gonna affect our physical. Uh, but it's ironic because emotional management is one of the least concerned areas of psychology and medicine. We don't really teach our children early on how to handle emotions, nor is it part of the research where we understand that this the, this approach to emotional management is the healthiest way. Um, and I'm sure it varies from person to person, but it's really interesting that there's not much talk behind it. Um, I like this quote from the International Journal of Psychotherapy Practice and Research. The author said, Patients with difficulties in managing their emotions subject their health and well-being into gross negligence and as a result are more likely to display a history of substance abuse, poor nutrition or disordered eating, lack of exercise, abnormal sleep patterns, poor compliance with medical interventions and behaviors that are injurious, injurious to oneself. If you're an emotional suppressor, you know we become experts in hiding emotion. Right? The authors state, 
it's important to acknowledge that feelings and emotions are not responsible for health disorders and sickness, which I partially agree with, but rather it is the protracted reliance on self-defense against the expression of emotions and feelings that creates attention required for the disease to thrive. In other words, we do so much to hold back our emotions that it creates so much tension within us and it's that environment where disease thrives. But remember, I spoke about telomeres last year and these are markers of our biological age. And I spoke about how stress or unresolved stress affects longevity. Well, what we're seeing in research is aging and longevity is uh, in psychological factors like emotion are becoming more important predictors of health than diet and being active, which sort of coincides with the whole part about me speaking about community, because again, that's releasing the stress. You have a place to share stress. You have, a, you have uh, confidence. You have social reliance. Well, the same thing happens when you know how to speak your stress or tackle unresolved stress. What, what these authors were saying that that might be more important right now than diet and being active, which is incredible stuff. So 2013, the Journal of Psychosomatic Research found that emotional suppression was a risk for earlier death, in particular, cancer, which makes sense. There was an article in 2005 which showed what are some of the emotionally linked complaints and disorders and how we see it in the body. So really interesting stuff. So for example, in cardiology, we'll see hypertension, chest pain that can be connected to emotional suppression, palpitations. What about dermatology? Psoriasis, dermatitis, itching. What about endocrinology, your hormones? fatigue, obesity, thyroid issues, thyroid dysfunction, gastroenterology, right? This is one of the first places we see suppressed emotion. Irritable bowel syndrome, dyspepsia, ab abdominal pain. What about internally? We see general symptoms like weakness, pain, fatigue. What about our nerves, neurology, uh, paralysis, headaches, dizziness, pseudo seizures? What about gynecology? A lot of pelvic pain. Right? What about unresolved pelvic pain? Your doctor can't find out. This is some stuff that we really need to look into. Sexual dysfunction, infertility. What about ophthalmology? Visual blurring, tunnel vision, blindness. Respira respiratory system, shortness of breath, of course, when you're holding in all those emotions, right? The anxiety, choking spells, pain, fibromyalgia, fatigue, chronic. You get the idea. It can affect all the systems in our body when we hold in that stress. That stress has an affinity for different parts depending on different people, but it can manifest differently. So for me, it can show as uh, a skin issue like psoriasis, whereas my friend can have all gastrointestinal issues like irritable bowel syndrome, right? And they're getting abdominal pains, whereas his wife can have pelvic pain, sexual dysfunction. So it depends on the person, but regardless, now is the time if you suppress emotions and don't show them in a healthy way, we need to start making that intervention. And there's an important distinction between emotional suppression and what it means to be emotionally repressed. Emotional suppression involves intentionally avoiding distressing feelings by thinking of other things or holding things in, whereas emotional repression is defined by the lack of conscious awareness of a negative emotion, right? So we have repression and then suppression. The suppression part sometimes manifests as the unhealthy coping behaviors uh, instead of having the healthy release. So. What else did some of these authors see? Emotional suppressions or suppressors have higher and more sensitive responses to stress, which makes sense because it's chronically activated. Not only is the nervous system more sensitive than folks who are not emotionally suppressing, but also the stress hormone response is in the adrenals is much more sensitive. So when our brain tells our adrenals, hey, there's a bear in the room, the adrenals are reacting much more sensitively 
for these emotional suppressors. So I want to mention before I revealed the significant association between emotional suppression and cancer, but we also see that in hypertension and heart diseases. But why? Well, the theory right now is that folks who emotionally suppress utilize unhealthy coping behaviors, right, to release that stress. And also, as I mentioned, the neuroendocrine dysregulation, right? Our nervous system and our hormones are being affected, the stress hormone, and our nerves are sensitive, meaning that the bodies can't handle stress comfortably. And in essence, this is laying the foundation for disease. 2012 Journal of Health and Psychology authors did a meta-analysis, which is a review of all of the studies, on the relationship between repressive, and repressive coping and somatic diseases, right? How does it manifest in the body? And this review assessed over 6,000, over 6,500 participants. And what we saw was a significant association with repressive coping and as I mentioned before, again, cancer, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. So what are some solutions, right? Okay, so we hear all this, you know, someone's listening, they go, I'm an emotional suppressor, what the heck do I do now? Really, I wanna give you some solutions. First, it's perspective. We have to understand what emotions are. They're energetic waves that pass, right? You are allowed to feel energy in motion, emotion. You can feel and honor that charge, but because you're doing so, you're bringing awareness to them. Ask yourself, where, when did your relationship with emotion start? How did it start? How did it look? And understand that it's not you. It's not the person. It's your personality. But again, it's not you. It's an adaptation that you've created in life at some point. Maybe you learned it. You're also, you need to bring awareness that you are not your emotions because you're not. It's like saying you're a bumpy road that your car is driving on. You feel the bumps, but it would be silly for us to think that we're the road because we're not. We're actually the driver. So too is the truth of emotion. You feel the emotion, but it passes just like a bumpy road. So with this awareness and the perspective that I'm trying to give you, it's an opportunity now to understand that one, you're not your emotions. So therefore you can express them and however you express them is not you. There might be a little bit of a learning curve, especially if you've been repressing for a long time, but honor your feelings. Don't shoot them down, right? You feel like hitting a punching bag, hit a punching bag. But also the awareness and observation that your feelings are not you empower you to understand that you can see them from a higher perspective and go, okay, these emotions came up. I was triggered. Why was I triggered? Uh, when did it start? And what can I do about it? It's very important stuff uh, and bring com more compassion into it. If you need to bring it out, talk to a person who triggered you, great. If you need to journal it, talk to yourself, do some introspection, great. But regardless, just the awareness of emotions and emotions not being you creates a massive space and change to start moving stuff. Expressive therapy. You can sit and talk to a trained professional and this is not something new. It's been done for a long time, but it works. And we've seen uh, this in cancer. There was a study done by, with 125 uh, patients who had metastatic breast cancer, 64 were randomized to intervention, 61 were in the controlled condition. The intervention group was offered a year of weekly supportive expressive therapy, and, and the control group was given educational materials only. So what they found was the women in the supportive expressive therapy group had reduced stress, disease-related stress, overall distress, when they were able to actually speak, face, and integrate their emotions in a healthy way. What about expressive writing? Well, this has been shown to have a positive effect on the immune system, actually, and also the nervous system, the neuroendocrine system, how the nervous system affects the hormonal system. So expressive writing, you hear me talk about journaling all the time, and it's not just for you know spiritual work, but it's also the mental, emotional, physical part. 
EFT, tapping, emotional freedom technique. We all know that it can help anxiety in studies. We've seen this. Um, but ha tapping different points of the body, which will signal different parts of your brain, will help reduce your stress. Um, and this is based on meridian points of traditional Chinese medicine. But you can go on Google, look on YouTube on how to start tapping. Look, there's not enough data, but it, but it works. I've seen it work on people, and it's absolutely safe. So I can say it with confidence. Um, there is the emotion code. The emotion code is what I understand a program and a modality that is really helpful for folks to bring up unresolved stress. I don't know enough about it to speak really educatedly, but um, the emotion code or researching the emotion code is really important. Breath work I do know about. I've been doing breath work for two years now, and breath work has been incredible at moving that trauma. And it's interesting because when you hit a point in breath work, you feel you feel those, that part, the emotions that are stuck in your body coming up, being released, and it's pretty incredible. Of course, meditation, of course, being in solitude, being okay with being alone, being okay with letting that, that darker trauma, whatever, whatever it is that you're holding in, come up. Um, you can also check out the book, The Body Keeps Score, to understand that those emotions are always stored. But really, my whole point to do this talk is so you all can be educated that emotional suppression although it may be seamless for you right now, was learned at some point. And the emotional suppression ain't doing your body good. It ain't doing your mind good. And it's predisposing us to diseases long-term. So if we are putting in those emotions under the rug, uh, it's time right now for us to make a change and understand that we can express emotion without fear, without fear of judgment, and uh, really put a, foot, a foothold on our long-term health. All right, everyone. Very special, very special, very special guest. All right, right. She's Australian. She lives in New York. I've been trying to get her on the show forever. She's finally on the show in LA, in person. This is a treat. Luisa Nicola. She is a neuroscientist and brain performance coach. We're going to go all things brain. I can't wait to have this conversation. Cognition, strengthening my memory when I forget my lines. Luisa, thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much. It is an absolute delight to be here, even though I just got off a six-hour intensive flight from New York City. See, they, they don't know. No, you they came don't. straight from I, yeah. the airport in a car yeah. straight to the show. This is how honored LAX I LAX got my car and I went straight to Santa Monica. Unbelievable. I know. This, this was for you. This, this is how dedicated <laughs> you are into empowering the audience, right? Yeah, definitely. But no, seriously, thank you, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I was on your show earlier mm. this year and we talked about, from my side, the naturopathic approaches to brain health. Yes. And uh, you, you've, you're, every time I log on, there's something amazing that you're talking about when it comes to brain health. And yeah. you know, you're the person I follow for that. But what really got you into brain health? Why, why didn't you go into, into kidney, kidney health, uh, reproductive health, brain health in particular? It's a love story, actually. It's, um, it's my greatest love story. I was actually a triathlete growing up. So my mother got, you know, uh, whenever you look at an Australian, always know that they're a good swimmer. Okay, we That's will, true. Yeah, so okay. I was a swimmer going through school. And then at around 17, I started training for triathlons. And I ended up qualifying and competing at Beijing and Auckland World 20 World Championships, 2012 and 20, 2011 and 2012. So that's where I developed my passion for physiology. And that's where I developed my passion for the brain because I had a, I actually had a very bad accident. 
prior to going to Beijing. So I had trained my entire life for this one, this one race, qualified for the Australian Championships, went to Beijing, well, I was about to go to Beijing and I was actually hit by a car and I was concussed and I was like a, a few bones broken. So I was out. So I had to forfeit my title. And I remember I said to myself, I'm going to dedicate like this year to going to the next year. And I wanted to keep competing. And my coach looked at me and said, you can only get so good when you've, you know, when you've fractured a few bones, you know, I fractured my femur, I broke uh, my clavicle, like I was concussed, like so many things happened, not just physiologically, but in, in all aspects, you know, spiritually, like things were taken away from me mentally, emotionally. And he said, you can only get so far. So I got, you know, I got myself to a level. This was around 2011. After the, after the accident, I got myself to my peak again by the end of 2011. I couldn't get faster. And then he said to me, he goes, the only way that you're going to get faster is if you train your brain. This was 20, you know, we're 2020. This is going back, you know, a long time ago. And we weren't really talking about neuroscience back then. Right. We've only started to develop our love for the brain in the last two years as a society. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I want you to have an EEG. I had no idea what it was. EEGs, electroencephalogram, you know, those caps that you put on your head. It was a 32 lead. I went, you know, went into hospital. I had all these leads on my head and I was just seeing all these little lines. And I, and I said, doc, what are they? And he said, I'm measuring your brain waves." He said, and with this, with the help of neurofeedback, we can actually get you to be performing at an even greater level. Hmm. And that's where I fell in love with the brain. So I decided to dedicate my entire career to understanding the brain. Was it that when you were sitting there with the leads on your head yeah. and, and this doctor tells you this, mm. were you like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, I said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, no, I need to be able to swim faster. I need to be able to run faster and get on the bike quicker, you mm -hmm. know, in my transitions. And he said, you've reached your peak physiologically. He said, we need to get through some mental barriers. And even back then, as an elite athlete, we, we were not taught this stuff. You know, my entire thesis revolves around this. We've always known about the three pillars of athletic performance. We know that there's physiological, we know that there's technical, and we know that there was psychological. Okay, so you can train the brain, either the mind of an athlete. You know, we learned about sports psychology. We learned about techniques, you know, how to go in tactfully into your sport, whatever sport that is. We also knew about energy systems, how to train anaerobic and aerobic. But now in the last five years, um, technologies such as EEGs, fMRIs, which is functional um, magnetic resonance imaging, it's provided us the platform to have a fourth element, I believe, and that's neurological. Mm, and, yeah. and, and you're running with that right now. And that's you what, that. Yeah, that was, yeah. So I think around, so obviously I, I went to school, so mm -hmm. I did an undergraduate degree in physiology and exercise. I graduated, I did a master's of pure mathematics where I actually went into the neuroscience of mathematics. So that was, you know, an eye opener. God bless you for that one. <laughs> and then went into medicine and science. And now I'm co-authoring, um, a number of different publications, one now on ALS, mm -hmm. which is a completely different field than what I'm used to, but it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so once I did that in around 2014, I started my company, which is Neuroathletics, which is literally the intersection of neuroscience and athleticism. I love that. And it's not just, I know, I know you work with high level athletes, mm. but it's not just athletes. It's no. all of us can benefit from this approach. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's this outdated, um, you know, fraud, uh, Fraud. It's a Freudian view to yeah. believe that, and it's very outdated. And I used to believe it a lot. My slogan is the mind is what the brain does. We used to believe that the mind and the brain is separate, mm -hmm. but now 
we know that there is a very clear connection between your consciousness and your brain. So if you, the way I like to think about it, and it's a very, amongst neuroscientists, it's very controversial, but this is where, you know, I always say, if you've got a brain, you can train it. And it really affects, if you can train your brain in specific parts, and we're going to go through that, specific areas, you can actually overcome so many different, you know, mental illnesses that we've got, you know, I believe that, you know, you can, if you pick up on depression early enough, you can, you know, kind of safeguard yourself from getting to that position by Mm -hmm. training your brain in specific ways. Um, You can get over a bad day, you can get over anxiety, you can really live a happier, healthier, longer life if you really learn the fundamentals of brain training. Okay. So... I mean, you piqued my interest. I want to know all the fundamentals of brain training. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah, like before we got on air, I was talking to you. I'm like, oh, you know, I haven't slept that well the past few days. My memory automatically, like it's hard for me to have that short term. The brain for me is so affected. Yeah. So fast. And I told you about the mold thing in the last year. Yes, absolutely. It's affected my brain so much. So uh, just now recovering. But what are some of the things that we can really start putting on the table for our listeners and viewers. Well, you actually picked up on something really good there where you said you didn't sleep well and then it affected your, it probably mm-hmm. affected your, not just your your memory, but also your cognition, yeah. how you're feeling. You probably got a bit, I'm not sure, but did you increase your calorie intake that day? Uh, yeah. It yeah. was definitely, yeah, it was especially yesterday. I was like extra hungry. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you're a fan of Dr. Matthew Walker. He's one of the um, Berkeley um, sleep specialist sleep scientist, Mm -hmm. and he's absolutely phenomenal. I I read all of his papers and he publishes a number of different research to suggest that sleep, and I'm a huge fan, like literally my day is revolved around how can I enhance my sleep quality? Because when it comes to the brain, we've all heard of the term neuroplasticity, right? When neurons fire together, they wire together, meaning our brain is like plastic. So if you want to learn a skill, we can go out and we can learn that skill. And if we keep repeating that skill, we induce neuroplasticity. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've heard of it. Everyone sure. has yeah. heard of this mm-hmm. term. But what actually happens is neuroplasticity is actually embedded into your brain during sleep. So when you get deep restorative sleep, that is where all of the mechanical work goes. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. So if you can really focus on your sleep, things like neurogenesis, Okay, the formation of new neurons. Your brain literally cleans itself during deep sleep. Now, a very interesting fact about sleep. A study that was just um, written in PNAS, Mm P-N-A-S, I wanted to really alliterate that Mm -hmm. one, um, showed that deficits of sleep from, if you're losing at least let's just say four hours of sleep reduction each night. So what, what do you sleep usually? Like? Uh, eight hours, I'd say. Eight hours? Mm-hmm. Do you know what, what times are you sleeping? That's a problem. My eight hours are usually around like two o'clock. Oh, see, that's a very big Yeah, problem. or like yeah. one o'clock. It's, it's difficult for me to get into bed past 12. Yeah, you have I, or up before 12, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So all of these studies have been done to suggest when's the best time to go to yeah. sleep. And it's around, they, they, they suggest any time between two to three hours before midnight. So you're looking at around a 9.30, 10 p.m. sleep. And the study showed that those who were sleep deprived by four hours each night actually like induced different um, tumor growth in Mm. in their bodies. So they've shown a clear correlation between tumors like and the formation of different cancers 
and sleep deprivation, not to mention all of the other things like fogginess, um, you know, bad driving, yeah. bad attention. Yeah. And all things like that. It's interesting because you think about then what the mechanism behind that. We know that like cytokines are a major yeah. issue. With Massive. The inflammatory issue. So is it the push of inflammation just by virtue of you not even getting a good night rest at sleep? Yeah. Well, that's um, actually, uh, that's another piece that they're not really clear of. They're not really clear of like what is the mechanism that's actually driving somebody to have, like what the study was done, of course, on on mouse models. And what they found is they induced the um, sleep deprived mouse models with um I, I forget it off the top of my head, but they showed that um, it was, and I can give you the reference to mm-hmm. this. They showed that the tumor, the tumor growth in the um, in the mouse models was accelerated wow. when sleep deprived, which is so scary. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not just talking that about that with just you know with cancer. I'm talking about that with absolutely everything, especially when it comes to elite athleticism. Yeah. So boom, first pillar, we got to be sleeping. Yeah. Right. First pillar, you've got to be sleeping now. Ask yourself, okay, you know, a lot of people ask me, okay, great, so I need help. I need help sleeping longer. And that's not necessarily what we want to be aiming for. We want to be aiming for sleeping better. It's about yeah. sleep quality. Now, I track my sleep. If, if you follow me, you follow me on Instagram yeah. and I'm absolutely obsessed. I've got two different types of sleep trackers <laughs> and it also shows me I wear the Whoop watch, um, not endorsed by them, but they show me my HRV, mm-hmm. heart rate variability, which is highly dependent on sleep. So um, I focus on half an hour before I go to bed. I focus on really like settling my mind down. Yeah. And I do that, which... We've spoken about before. I do that via, I take magnesium, but I also take GABA. Oh, you like GABA? Yes. Helps you. I absolutely love it. And the reason why I like it is it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, meaning that it inhibits an action potential. So it really, it has a a slowing down effect on the nervous system. Yeah. I have it half an hour before I go to bed. And there's two different types of things I have. So if anybody's out there and they're thinking, well, I have trouble falling asleep, okay? That's like when your mind is going a bit mm-hmm. crazy, you can't settle it down. I would always like say, okay, great. Maybe you should supplement with GABA. You know, go and try that out because if anybody's having trouble sleeping, it's because their mind is a bit restless. Right. But then there's another type where people don't have trouble falling asleep, but they have trouble staying asleep. And then that is them when we might want to introduce melatonin, for Mm -hmm, example, which mm -hmm. is another thing that, you know, 10 milligrams, I supplement with that, especially when I'm flying every now and then, um, just to help me get back on the um, sleep schedule. Mm -hmm. Are you on it right now? Not right now. (laughs) I will be very soon. I'm on Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. So you got to, and those are things that I've seen work beautifully for Mm. people, for sure. Um, so quality, 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 quality. Sleep. It's all about quality. Okay. If that's, that is the single most, you know, people, if, and you would get this a lot, you know, what can we do to better our brains or better our health? And I always say, don't look at anything else. Don't go and buy anything. All you have to do is work with, I call them the, the God given rocks. Okay. okay. God gave you the ability to sleep. Okay. Or mother nature, whoever it is mm-hmm. that you believe in, gave you the ability to sleep, the ability to eat. So then you've got to look at your nutrition. What are you putting in your body in terms of glycogen or anything that's keeping you up at night, restless, um, hydration, you know, 
These are the types of free things. Sleep is freely available and it is probably the number. I put that up there for one of the number one predictors of longevity and brain health. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, it's it's so clear when I don't sleep well. Even yeah. if I don't remember waking up through the night, and let's say I slept eight hours, I know when I don't sleep well. Mm. I feel it immediately. I'm like, whoa, there's like a, a veil of fogginess. Yeah, and it's going to be like this the rest of the day. Yeah, and I'm probably going to overeat because of those cytokines. You know? Absolutely. Actually, in that same um, article, sorry to interject, they yeah. actually found that 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 the subjects who were sleep deprived also ate between 300 to mm. 420 extra calories per night. Yeah, it makes sense. I would actually challenge the audience, if they don't sleep well, yeah. pay attention to how your appetite is mm. is being driven, right? And also on that for your audience, another really good thing to point out is consistency. So it's not enough. What they've shown in the exact same paper, they showed that sleep is not like a bank. You can't accumulate all this debt and then on the weekend say, well, I'm going to sleep for 12 (laughs) hours. Like it just doesn't work like that. But in saying that, I would caution everybody to understand that you, there is always a good time to get on a good sleep schedule. Yes. So it's not like you have to be sleeping. And now that I'm like, you know, I just turned 33 Mm -hmm. and I remember when I was 25 and I could literally maybe go out and drink and be a bit crazy. And then I could get up and run a triathlon the next, if I have a a glass of (laughs) two glasses of wine now, like I'm out. Yeah. But I really try to stay on my sleep schedule. Yeah. And, and this is exactly what Dr. Michael Bruce was talking about a few months yeah. ago on the show. Oh, yes. Yeah, you, know, you, can't, you can't just do that. And then on the weekends, yeah. party, you have to mm. be consistent. So look, you've inspired me to get to bed earlier Good. already. Good. I would appreciate that. What other things for brains? I, I, you know, I go on your page sometimes and I see these really interesting exercises that you have these people yeah. doing to stimulate what is it? Is it brain connection, new connection, nerve connection? Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting because I, I wanted to get like this little pole to walk on while I'm doing my calls and also yeah. like move my arms while I'm doing it just yeah. to stimulate that. But uh, can you just maybe let us know what, what else can we be doing? Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. So a lot of the things that we can be doing every single morning, I would tell everyone, no matter how old you are, fitness levels, whatever it is, if you can get into any type of training that stimulates the brain and nervous system, I call them neural activation drills. You're really going to start to get on a pattern of being able to react faster think faster, um, make better decisions. And we all want to make better decisions, right? Mm -hmm. But over time, as we get older, we, we kind of, we stop doing things that are, that are really hard for us. We're always looking for the easy way (laughs) out. So some of the different exercises that I like to do with general population are reaction training exercises. Anything as little as getting a handball, like a a tennis ball and throwing it at the wall with one hand for a minute. It's actually quite hard. If you can actually sustain that and then just doing it with the left hand, you're already, you know, kind of getting into the habit of reacting. You know, you've got to react the ball, you've got to throw it straight away. Mm -hmm. And then actually another very good coordination drill that I use is if you're throwing the ball at the wall with your right hand, pick your left foot up. And what you're kind of doing there is you, you, you're activating both hemispheres of the brain. And we know that the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. Right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. And obviously the the two brain, the the hemispheres are connected via the corpus callosum. We call that like Mm -hmm. the bridge between the two brains. And we want to be activating both of them. And we want to be able to stress our nervous system because you would know through stress comes adaptation in all dimensions. And this is where I think is the missing piece to athleticism. Yeah, a yeah. thousand percent. And I was yeah. just talking about 
uh, <laughs> I was just wearing a sweatshirt before it said seek discomfort because yeah. of that approach, the stress mm. causing the adaptation and growth. Yeah. Whether it's physical or whether it's mentally pushing through or whatever it yeah. may be. So I, I, it's funny because when you said throwing the ball with your right hand, with your left leg up, yeah. I felt how terrible already I'd be at this. Yeah. I can feel it already. Yeah. And you probably would have seen that I use um, reaction lights yeah. because another great thing that we've, um, that we've been able to develop in neuroathletics is what we call the neuroathletic method. And what we've found is over time, people stop using all of their senses, you know, auditory, visual, yeah. Um, spatial aware, like all of them where I, th you, I think to myself, if you're not training all dimensions of yourself, then they're going to eventually atrophy. You're going to, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to die away and shrinkage is what that means. So I think, well, how can we get not just an athlete, but any person to be using all the different senses. So we have these lights, these reaction training lights, they're, they're from a company named Fitlight and they literally, they, they flash different colors and you can set you know, I, I might say, okay, on red, I want you to jump. On yellow, I want you to think of a, a name mm -hmm. starting with K. Okay. And it's very mentally frustrating and demanding. I feel it already. It's ups it's actually, yeah, a lot of, um, I'm not just saying this, but a lot of the, a lot of the guys end up getting very frustrated. I, I believe it. The girls just cry. <laughs> so. Our ego is just yeah. like, oh, what do, you, what do you mean? I can't do this. I'm not good at something. Yeah. But, but fit light. So yeah. I don't know how much they are, but I wonder if we can just look it up and get it because yeah, what no, a seriously. challenge it would be like. And listen, they're doing some amazing things. They're not just going into, you know, they started off by going into teams. I know that a lot of the NFL and NBA teams are starting to adopt the FitLight system. And mm. now they've got like a an app where everybody can use them. And it's just oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So we can check out the app for yeah. all of the viewers and listeners and at least maybe put it as part of our morning routine or midday something where yeah. we can challenge ourselves. Literally. So folks who start doing this every single day, is it is it really bringing forth... Uh, sharper cognition? Do you Absolutely. see like, like once you get over the hump where yeah. you, you're kind of flowing with it, Yeah. do you see that that's really helpful? Yeah. So I see it in two areas. Okay. One of my areas is obviously elite sport. Okay. I want to be able to look at a player and say, okay, your reaction time right now is 0.27. I want it at a 0.17. And I literally have a a portfolio for them. And every week I do the exact same drills. Mm. You know, sometimes I see them three or four times a week and it's all about just stressing, 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 yeah. because what does that enable a player to do? Enables them to not only react to a ball, okay, they can catch a ball, but they have to be so intelligent with what they do with the ball. And it's, it's the matter between like 0.1 of a second and 0.3 of a second. Mm. And that really matters when you're talking about the NBA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we've got another field and it's the medical field. And I found a lot of success using these type of lights with post-stroke patients. So what we know with a stroke is uh, ischemia. It is, you, you lose, it's a loss of cells in the brain. And they don't, the, whatever, the, whatever the cells that were damaged during that stroke, they don't grow back. Right. But what happens is the cells around them overpower them and, and grow. So you can actually like, you know, in most cases depending on the level of the stroke, you can go back to full functioning. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that a lot of the post-stroke patients or even, you know, if they've gone in and had a, a brain injury or, or of some kind or a brain surgery, their rehab is very physical. Yeah. Not a lot of them are doing things with lights or things with, 
you know, number games or reaction games or memory games. So that's where we really get a lot of success. Mm, that's that's interesting yeah. because you you most again you said most of these post stroke um, people who've who've really experienced some pretty severe symptoms they go to physical therapy. That's what it is. It's um, uh, occupational therapy, yeah, yeah. and by all means, I think that's extremely necessary. But again, there comes a point in time where okay, they've got their their physical abilities back. Some of them, you know, depending on where the stroke is, you know, my father ha had a, mm. a stroke in his right parietal lobe, which caused a lot of dysfunctions on his left side. And it took around, you know, six months of physical therapy for him to actually get walking again. Right. But then what we found is he was sleeping a lot, which is very normal, but his memory was gone. His decisions were gone. He was very angry. Mm. His ability to coordinate and make um, sharp decisions were really lessened. So uh, we brought that up by giving him the neuroathletic method. Mm, that's powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah, it's I'm, a I'm really beautiful thing. Yeah. And, you know, so what, I, like, what I'm doing now is I'm going around all around the United States and I'm teaching athletic trainers and coaches on the fundamentals of neuroscience yeah. because I think it's really important. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you know, but I've looked at the, I've looked at the, and, uh, NASM, NASM mm -hmm. um, qualifications to become a certified athletic coach and none of it introduces neuroscience. And I say, well, how can you feel like you're qualified right. to even coach someone when you don't know the fundamentals of neuroscience? You don't know what an action potential is. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's necessary as a coach to know that? I, I do. I really do. Yeah. I mean, why not? Why not yeah. get, get better at what you're doing? And I think that brain muscle coordination is everything in athletics. So Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what, all right, what are some of the things that we're doing in our lives that are really affecting our brain? What are, what are some no-nos yeah. that you're like, hey, you know, we want to optimize you and your brain potential, but we got to start cutting this stuff out. Yeah. Did you notice anything in your research or in your expertise? Absolutely. Okay, so awesome. first and foremost, and this is, I'll, I'll, I'll get away from the medical side and I'll, I'll bring it down to where we can all, you know, really understand and benefit. And yeah. the, I don't know if your audience is going to hate this, but first and foremost, alcohol is um, terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's actually, what I found is a lot of people take alcohol to help them quote unquote fall asleep. And that's not what it is. So alcohol, ethanol, it's, it's, it's a sedative. So you're actually sedating yourself. You're not, you're not going into a sleep. You're just going into uh, a coma, for example, and you're not. And I'm finding a lot of people are like, "Well, maybe I'll have a, uh, I'll have a maybe one drink, two drinks yeah. per night," and it's the worst thing you can do for your brain because you're not actually inducing sleep. You're just going into a maybe stage one sleep, which is just not even restorative at, at all. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would definitely suggest is. Sugar. Now, you know a lot about this. Mm -hmm. You know a lot about glycogen. I wear a continuous glucose monitor. And even me, someone who is absolutely obsessed with health and mitochondrial health, I didn't know that the types of things I was eating, I was going to get an insulin spike from. Yeah. And it's absolutely incredible. Like right now, I'm able to maintain my my range and my levels. But what we've found is that someone's ability to retain information and also be able to have a full day. Like, you know, when kind of at 2 p.m. you get that slump in your energy. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. I remember those days, but I, I've, I've intervened, but I remember those days, yes. Yeah. So 
there is a direct correlation between the weight, the energy that you're feeling and the sugars that you're putting in your body. And that's, you know, that's getting into that kind of nutrition side. It's like, what's not good for my brain? And, you know, I, I interview a lot of people and talk to a lot of people as well. And there's a lot of, you know, extremely, extremely great neurologists out there that adopt a vegan only diet, Mm -hmm. but then there's others who, you know, and that's for brain health. Mm. That's what they believe. But then there's some other people who really believe that adopting, you know, a a Mediterranean diet with Mm. fruits, vegetables, and meats is better for your brain. And I'll never comment on what I believe is is best, but uh, you know, in terms of that, because every single person's different, everyone's got a different phenotype, everyone's got a different um, genetic makeup. Right. But definitely, nutrition is something that's really um, is really something you need to down pat for your brain. Major, major, and major. The, 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 it's funny um, when I got the aura ring. Oh, you're an aura ring. I'm an aura. Well, that I did, that's what I got offered, so that's what I went with. Yeah, give me. If I would I would have taken a whoop if it was yeah. on the table, yeah. but. Um, I tried the aura ring and mm. I remember I had a glass of wine once oh, no. um, and I saw, oh no, yes, exactly. Because I thought that one wine, one glass of wine wouldn't do anything like three hours before bed. And mm. it was, it was a marked difference between what the night before and the night after you yeah. saw how it affected my deep sleep. Yeah. I didn't even get into a deep no, sleep. No, no, not at all. It's pretty wild. And you just mentioned deep sleep is where we start detoxifying, cleaning up everything, you yeah. know, integrating those memories. Question, how was your HRV after you had the wine? Um, I don't remember because this was a while ago, but I, it was absolutely for sure lower. Um, the last time I had more than one drink, I had the Aura Ring too. This was last year. And the HRV was definitely like, I, I saw the HRV and I was like, that's low. That's low to, to me. Yeah. You know, and everyone's got a different, you know, 200 different. would be my, my peak, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think it was lower than that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> For cool. sure. I just remember it the relativity going, okay, this is different, Yeah, you know, but, um, yeah. So the nutrition I know plays an important role. Yeah. The, something that I've been really looking into is how environmental talk, cause I love environmental medicine. You love environmental toxins. I do, but, but just thinking about like air we breathe, right? Mm. Mold spores getting into our brain, uh, for folks who are genetically susceptible, mm. inflaming the brain. Um, the gut part, mm. right? The gut inflammation, oh, yeah. the yeah. gut brain connection. Yeah. I think I heard Microbiome. you speak about that. Yeah, like yeah, I was that... actually interviewing the head of R and D at Seed, who mm-hmm. they've um, formed a, a symbiotic, which is a probiotic and a prebiotic, and nice. they're doing a lot of work. You know, when it comes to gut microbiome, and I'm still very new, even though mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of research in that area, I'm still very new to it. But um, what I can suggest is it's a, it plays a massive role in not just our overall health, mm-hmm. but our brain health especially when it comes to anybody who's um, maybe susceptible to things like Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative diseases, mm-hmm. um, and or somebody who's suffered a, um, a concussion. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, you, ju- and you just mentioned the, the neurodegenerative diseases, right? Alzheimer's. I have a, I have a grandfather, Parkinson's. Okay. Very important early on. It's not yeah. just like we start early, 20s, 30s. Mm. For this stuff, yeah, and to protect our brain, yeah, by sleeping, yeah, by nutrition, by exercises, right? Yeah, so that's like a, a really good model to adopt. Okay, it's that centenarian model. You know, if you look yeah. at that, you think, okay, great. What are you training for? You know, training for me changed. I used to focus on endurance. Okay, and I was, you know, I, as an as a, a triathlete, we were. I was training forty plus hours a week, and it was harsh now that i look back i'm like that can't be good that's actually probably um you know inhibiting like my longevity Mm -hmm. but what i do now is i train for long-term brain health 
And you just said it, Christian, you can't get to age 80 or age 90 and reverse everything and start then. You really have to get into it now. So yeah. as I call these pillars, so I've got like 18 events I call that I want to hit when I'm 100 and a lot of them revolve around how do I move, how do I think, how do I sleep? You know, I want to be able to sleep. I want to be able to get up. I want to be able to walk. In order to do all this, you really do have to have a good functioning brain because the the brain literally is the it is the boss of the entire body, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And something I really love to tell people is it's the only organ in the body that is able to learn about itself. Which is you know, astounding. It is. The, the kidney can't. <laughs> no, okay. No. So um, either can the heart. Which goes back to the mind part of the consciousness. Exactly. Right? I am aware of myself. You yeah. Know, it's incredible. But something I think is um, really profound is even the little things make a difference. Okay. It's like this, your brain is like, it's, it's a bank in terms of a compound effect. And I know that... Um, that very much juxtaposes what I said with sleep, saying that you, the sleep is not like a, a bank, yeah. but your brain, it really, it's a compound interest effect. If mm-hmm. you do one thing every single day, you know, for, for 10 days, it's going to compound, it's going to be even better for your brain the following mm-hmm. two weeks. And the little things that I do on a daily basis, like meditation, like journaling, okay, a lot of us think, well, how can journaling be good for the brain? Well, it's actually when you think about what I said earlier where the brain and the mind is connected, journaling is such a, a free-spirited thing. You, we all have bad days, okay? And what do we do when we have a bad day? We want to be able to talk to someone about our bad day. And what happens is we often put that on our spouse or somebody that's really close to us. We put all of our – because the brain just wants to release it, wants to get it out. Mm-hmm. We put it on somebody else and we think – Maybe that wasn't the right thing to do to just air my luggage on somebody else. And that's where journaling really plays a really beautiful role because it's very therapeutic. And I do this often, even if I'm not having a bad day. It's like, let's just journal. Let's get things out there. So it does help your mind. It does help your brain. Yeah. Visualization. I'm huge on this, not just from the sports psychology perspective, but on the perspective of we love to know as human beings and our brains, we love to know where we're going. We love to know forward thinking. Yeah. Okay, we love to know how long it's going to take us to do something. That's just how our brains are wired. Often, we don't set or we set these massive goals, five-year, ten-year goals. Okay, so we know your brain is like a server mechanism. It's got like this. It's got a target. Okay, it needs a target. We all have we all have that vision of what we want in ten years, five years, maybe even a year. But what happens is that is so big and so far away that your brain hasn't got a clear enough target to put itself on. So it gets a bit lofty. It gets off track. It doesn't really know where it's going. So it may lead you off track. And then that's where your brain is like, your brain's leading you off track, but your mind is getting really mad because it's like, well, that's not what I want. And you kind of get into this battle. You know, you've got to be able to really tell your brain what you want. And I, it's got to be so clear and concise. It's got to be able to fit on the head of a pin, mm-hmm. I say. Mm-hmm. That's like that tiny little point and visualizing enables me to be able to do that because I'm able to visualize my every single day I can visualize okay what I'm going to do today I take myself through the day everything I do takes myself through the day through the week I know the results I'm going to get by the end of the month which is going to lead me to the results I want by the end of the year Mm -hmm. it reaffirms to my brain oh we've got this 
can we know what's going on? Mm -hmm. So if there's any road bumps in your day, you can reassure yourself and say, that's fine. We've got this. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's, it's funny because I did a show on visualization and I said pretty much exactly what you said. Yeah. Use your senses so that you, you can really do, yeah. literally, it's a movie in your head that you know so clearly you can even smell it. Like yeah. You can taste it. You can see it. That's you know? actually really important. A lot of people just think if you just close your eyes and think about it, but you actually have to uh, really, it's got to be cinematic. Cinematic. You got to be able to feel, I say to the, my soccer boys, you got to be able to smell the grass, the fresh chopped yes. grass. What's the lights like? You know, what's the, what does it say on the scoreboard? Yeah. What are you wearing? Yeah. You know, do you, what do you smell like? For sure. You got to involve that. I love that. And I love yeah. that you said about journaling, that part of being able to release, because yeah. I think about what is the stress response and ongoing chronic stress response and yeah. how it affects the brain. We know it affects the gut. We know it affects the gut brain connection, mm. but chronic, chronic cortisol in the body and how that affects the brain is it, it's detrimental. Absolutely. So if we have an outlet, mm. uh, and I just spoke earlier about uh, emotional suppression and the outlet of that, mm. and part of that was journaling, that outlet is so important just for our bringing down that cortisol every single day, day to yeah. day, acutely and chronically. So one of the biggest things that I put on par with sleeping is your ability to manage your stress, yeah. especially in a pandemic. You know, we all get stressed. I, I, I'm, if I didn't practice my own techniques and practice what I preach, I'd be a walking time bomb because, you know, my, my family's back in Australia, but I'm here and it's, it's a very, everything is stressful. What we see, it's hard to not look at what's happening in the world. You don't want to shut yourself off, but you see it. So you get a bit stressed. So it's, you've literally got to be, it's not easy. You've got to remind yourself, hey, snap out of it. So you've got to have techniques for managing stress, mental stress, emotional stress, physical stress, mm -hmm. some of the different things. And we can talk about all three pillars. Um, but some of the things that I like to do is some call it, um, you know, sitting in silence for 10 minutes or, you know, yoga nidra is another form that you yeah. can get into, but it's literally spending 10 minutes a day. I don't care where you are, even if it's 11 a.m., 4 p.m., wherever you are, sit in silence for 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be called anything fancy. Just sit in silence, close your eyes, try not to think about anything. Powerful. That's like the solitude part. Yeah. That's solitude and letting, letting things come out. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, that's that's important that you said that, even if it's in your car, because everyone's like, well, I don't have 10 minutes to be home, like when I'm home because my kids start running around. Just, and maybe after you drop off the kids. Yeah. Pull over at a parking lot of an Applebee's. Yeah. And close your eyes close and take eyes. 10 minutes just to reset. Yeah. Because what that does to your cortisol is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, you may have an overactive nervous system that you may need to like just settle down mm -hmm. and breathe. And that's another one. Breathing is also a very big um, predictor of brain health and how you're feeling in terms of anxiety and stress. You can really manage your stress by practicing any type of breathing. So the, so you mentioned the mental emotional, we got the journaling, we yep. got the visualization, breathing, meditation, oh, yeah. the physical. Yeah. What do what do you like? Do you is there certain do you get massages? Do I do yep. I go on a sauna? What do you like? So I've actually recently um, gotten a pair of Normatech boots. Now okay. they are these um, boots that you put on your your legs and they're they they're compression boots. So that's one form of recovery I do. So I put my legs up and I'm getting a lot of um, blood flow up to the brain, mm -hmm. back down to the legs. Another big thing that I love is cold therapy. Oh, I, I took a cold shower this morning. Okay, great. We're going to talk about that. Please. Okay? We got to get um, into it. 
so I was I was in Australia for eight months and I was conducting a study on we don't have NFL in Australia but we have rugby league mm -hmm. so conducting a study with 12 boys and I was actually looking at cold thermogenesis okay so you you took a cold shower okay how long did you take it for three minutes like five and see, that's, that's really good. That might have, that makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what I would love for your audience to understand, and, and I really want to stress this is don't buy into mainstream media when they, you know, tell you things like, um, you know, go and have a, a cryotherapy right. session, for example, right. it makes you feel good. But the science behind it isn't too strong. Mm -hmm. Now the science behind having a cold bath is also not too strong. Mm -hmm. You have to get yourself into a state of hypothermic shock. You actually have to get your body at a certain temperature before the cold shock proteins actually start to work. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that cold shock proteins induce neurogenesis through a pathway that we don't need to go into. It's an RBM, RBM3 mm -hmm. pathway. But in order to actually induce neurogenesis you have to get into a bath for you have to be doing this consistently as well for at least five days a week you have to get into the bath and it might take your body to get to the ideal temperature it might take you 20 minutes it might take me 15 minutes mm. it's very everybody is Oof. it's very individual and i did it and my body got down my my temperature got down to a very very low temperature it was like my the bathtub was around two degrees Celsius. Oof. So it was freezing. And, um, and I got the aftermath of it, but that's another thing that I do. And I, I love that. I'm mm -hmm. not being, I'm not able to do it that much here. I've got an ice bath in my home in Australia, mm -hmm. but that's another thing I do for, um, to recover. Yeah. The, so cold shock proteins in contrast to the sauna where you get mm. the heat, heat shock proteins. I absolutely love the sauna. Yeah. So this is sort of something what I do. I'll go in the sauna. Yeah. Um, red light. I have the red light one. Yeah. But I tell people if you if you can't get the stationary one, you can mm. do like the um, portable ones. Mm. Just heating up your body, your core body temperature, and then contrasting that with the ice bath. Yeah. See the ice bath. You said twenty minutes. That yeah. sounds like that sounds like Death. an impossible feat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I've done eight minutes the most, and I got out of there and I was like shivering for quite a while. It's yeah. tough. It's really tough. But look. Nothing exactly. is meant to be easy. This is our brain we're talking about. This is our yeah. body. To have an effect, you really have to do, you really have to do really something push. shocking, yeah. right? Yeah. You have to push it. Just like if you want to produce an adaptation in your aerobic system, you right. can't just be going at 60% of your max HR per day. You have to really, really push it. Really push it. Wow. That's powerful. So th there you go. Some physical stuff. You have physical the recovery stuff. stuff. I've done the, the, um, what You've are the normal tech boots. I've done it with a chiropractor once. I'm like, oh, this feels great. Yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah. my legs feel great. Um, so, uh, before, before we wrap this up, I want to know what does the, the neuro, the brain queen, how does, how, what's a day like? Will you, will you wake up and what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, not including work. So my morning routine is very special to me. And you've slept already. A, a, good, a good sleep, quality, quantity. You're in if there. I'm not sleep, if I don't sleep good, I am, I'm very mad and I, I will be mad. Not because I'm mad. I'm mad that I stuffed my sleep up. Right. It's like a precious pot of gold for me. My sleep, I'm yeah. crazy. I wear a mask. Me night. too. Earplugs, yep. everything. I've got everything. I put on mouth tape actually. 
to, to for nasal breathing. Oh wow! Right? I actually so haven't done that. Mouth. Yeah, so it's it, it's I will talk about it later. Anyway, go go ahead. We want to so, know. So no, no. So I get up. The first thing I do is I actually have a cold shower. Okay. Okay. That's the very first thing I do. I'm very precious with my morning. The second thing I do is I head upstairs and I sit on my couch and I begin my morning meditation. I meditate for 20 minutes in the morning, keeping in mind. I've been doing this. I actually did a course on this, uh, a one-month course back in 2016. I learned how to meditate. So I do it. I think that it takes around three months to even like understand how to do it. So I do that for 20 minutes. I then go into five minutes of visualization and then five minutes of, I have positive affirmations, yeah. but when I was saying this with my um, with my network and with my athletes, they weren't really connecting with the word affirmations. So we call them power statements. Okay. And I've got Perfect. four. Yeah. And I use them every single day, but I actually yell them. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. No, so, hey, I, I say that. Uh, speak them. You've got to speak them but out have loud. force yeah. behind them. Yeah. Exactly. That's why Muhammad Ali was just so special. He used to always speak his, um, his everything into existence yeah. and it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my morning routine. I don't eat until, and I, it's not because I'm trying to do a I don't intermittent fast, or yeah. um, but I just, I don't eat, but I train every single morning. I train seven days a week and it's in the mornings. Okay. And that's the first thing I do. I may eat, I may start eating at like 1 p.m. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then you're good for your day. You visualize your day. And then I'm good. I've done everything. Good, yeah. And to me, like people might look at that and think, who has time for that? But let me tell you, you do. Everyone has time for that yes. because it's your brain. It's your life. It's your legacy. You have time for that because you have time for everything else. Mm -hmm. You have time to know what's happening on Grey's Anatomy Mm -hmm. and all these other shows that I've just learned about now. Yeah, you have time Um, to scroll Facebook, scroll Instagram. That's cumulative all the time you take. And that's what I tell people. Your morning routine sounds very close to mine except intense training. I I do it in the afternoon a little bit. But I don't don't train intensely. But regardless... The, the rituals in everyone's life is not only for physical health, it's a mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual connection to yourself. So that's like, uh, that is one of the first things, interventions I do mm. with any patient. So thanks for giving us that rundown. So um, neuroathletics. Neuroathletics. That's yes. in New York. That's, uh, we are Sydney, LA, New York based, so a full service neuroscience diagnostic testing company. Amazing. Yeah. So we do all of the um, brain scanning for athletes. And then we also now we teach neuroscience to coaches. So if anybody is NASM certified and they want to get um, continuing education points, they can. Mm -hmm. And where do we find you? You can find me on the Diamond Boss, which is my personal Instagram, or the Neuroathletics Instagram, or neuroathletics.com.au. Um, amazing. Look at this. Right? Straight straight You're from amazing. Australia to New York to over here. I appreciate Seriously. you for this conversation. I appreciate you. Empowering so many people, doing the work that you're doing in the brain industry. I'm telling you, you're my go-to. Yeah. I go on Instagram. I go, let me see, let me see what she says about this. What is this. she going out You yeah, know, so. I've got it on there. She, Everyone, she's my secret weapon, and I got her on the show right now. So thank you Thanks very for much sure. for joining. Thank you. Amazing talk with Louisa. What a sharp brain. I'm so happy. What a sharp brain. Right? We did a talk on brain. Uh, but uh, learning that we can just change our brain with 
very simple interventions like sleep. Are you now, I hope you all now prioritizing sleep. It's so important. But amongst all the other things she spoke about, really cool stuff we can do. Brain health is overall body health. It's everything, especially at work and whatever you're doing. So anyway, thank you for joining the show. Rate, reviewing, subscribing. I appreciate you all and I'll see you next week.